All right, everybody, welcome again to our Fact Finding Friday, Flexible Dieting Institute Research Review. I had an idea to start looking at the impact of insulin resistance because I was invited on a podcast to speak about this this week, and it took a turn I just wasn't ready for, um, but it opened up my thoughts to kind of a sequence of things and processes that I think people experience in different realms. So let, let me let me start out telling you uh, why it, it took this kind of a turn. The, the particular person who invited me to speak about insulin resistance, I immediately thought of pre-diabetes, blood sugar being kind of, you know, on a runaway train. And that creates a lot of receptor site uh, desensitization. And I was going down that path. And truly, he was just kind of a bodybuilder who said, well, it's very in vogue now, Joe, like competitors, whether you're 20 years old, 30, 40, they're looking at their blood sugar with a glucometer when they wake up. And if it's, let's say, 110 instead of 80 or 75 or 90, they start thinking, wow, I've got too much stress or maybe I'm eating too much carbohydrate or or maybe I'm just not reaching a state of body fat loss at night like I need to. So maybe I should, you know, create a fasting window that's bigger. You know, everybody's putting stock in this. And so we were talking about all the things that that go hand in hand with glucose modulation and and, and that kind of insulin sensitivity. And then I, I thought to him toward the end, I mean, we had been like 90 minutes deep into this. I said, you do realize like cortisol and stress impacts this more than anything. Like, like the person who's waking up with 110, 115 blood sugar level after fasting all night, they're probably not getting seven or eight hours of sleep. And he goes, oh yeah, right. There's somebody who gets like three or four and they're probably chronically dieting and in stress and, and just systemic inflammation from training. Like give that person a, a few days off, just kind of a deload, get them to sleep seven or eight hours a night. And I guarantee their blood sugar level will come back down. But, but I started thinking in terms of, is there really any fat loss implication to that? And, and what is the biggest impact point we could discuss for us, for our clients and our coaches? And it really came down to just looking at the science of hunger, because what you're going to see, if, if you're going to truly look at, why is my computer not moving? There we go. Um, you know, where the rubber meets the road with blood sugar levels, it, it's probably, it, it is a bit of a theory, meaning that there are different schools of thought. But I think the people who have meted this out in research uh, have shown that blood sugar level has more impact on true hunger than anything else. So we can talk about the behavioral and the psychological issues of hunger. We can talk about styles of dieting, which we have in FDI before, the metabolic switch, metabolic positioning, keto versus carbs, all of that. But at its most foundational biological level, what is the role of blood sugar level? And when you talk about the methodology, which we may be using different types of methodologies to diet, is there a way of dieting that's better than another? How can we control that? So I found this study and I thought it was truly just a, a great, great picture. It's, it's actually, it's not even a meta-analysis per se. It's more of a paper, just a scientific paper in the International Journal of General Medicine. And it has some of the qualities of a meta-analysis. There's a lot of citations, but, but truly these researchers just kind of picked apart the prevailing theories of hunger and, and started looking at those cues, the biological cues like blood sugar, the hormonal stress, lifestyle, just learning, you know, how you were raised with food cues as a, as a child, an infant even. And so they had these all categorical and they, they looked at, you know, how, how they could try to interpret that research. So, so I'm not going to. I'm not going to say that this title is misleading, but it's certainly not the whole story. Hunger can be taught. That's part of what we're going to discuss today. But hunger recognition, true hunger recognition is what they proved here. And can you, as almost an internal biofeedback mechanism, if, if I asked you guys right now, because this is what, where we're going to end up with this research review, if I asked you guys, if you could predict like right now, what is your blood sugar level? 
could one of you come within uh, you know, five or 10% being accurate? You know, hey, my blood sugar level is 120. No, it's 70. No, it's 60. Like that's the training that these, these researchers really looked at. So let me, let me talk about where hunger comes from biologically. And then we're going to tease that apart from what that looks like behaviorally. So one of the phrases that you see in literature with hunger research is, is initial hunger like that, that first, and we've talked about this a lot in the last year in FDI. I I've talked many, many times about that first hunger pang that you feel where you, you know, you may feel like your stomach's empty or blood sugar starting to get a little low. And I've talked about, even when we were going over topics like intermittent fasting and, and long-term like one meal a day fasting, how you get those feelings of lightheadedness that like hypoglycemia, you can feel your blood sugar going down. So those physiological symptoms of hunger and, and what happens, like, can you, can you just wait your way through that? What's happening internally? Is that a cue that you should be eating? So, so the, this is what I loved about this. I, I learned a couple of really cool things that the, the epigastric empty hollow sensation, that's, that's the way they describe it is that when you look at all of the cues happening physiologically, when your stomach's empty or your duodenum is empty, the, the, where your, your stomach contents enter the small intestine, uh, there's actually kind of a big reaction there. I, I, I just never knew this. I thought it was, you know, kind of a, a quasi just systemic organic thing where food is emptying out the pyloric sphincter will open up and let contents through as they are digested and ability and, and able to be absorbed. But there's actually almost a violent emptying of your stomach at the end. There's something called like phase three contractions where when your when your stomach's almost empty and you just almost as a cue neural gastric loop, your, your stomach will contract hard and really push those final contents out hard into the small intestine. And that's, that's actually a, a neural stimuli for you to actually, you know, feel hunger. So that's where that hunger pang comes from. So blood sugar is not even really affected yet because you still have contents being emptied into your small intestine. It's still being absorbed. Blood amino acids and lipids and, and glucose are still on their way up. But yet, even with that hunger pang, you still have a growing positive energy balance occurring, which is a little bit of a juxtaposition. Those are kind of opposite cues. But outside of that, that mechanical emptying of your stomach, then the next phase when your blood energy balance your, your, is, is coming back down, that's when you could start feeling that fatigue and those symptoms of hypoglycemia. And so what they were really looking at in this particular review is... Is there a way, can there be something that you're paying attention to those initial hunger cues? Can you teach people to do that and then set up a meal pattern that, that addresses that and that feeds into the biological norms and rhythms of your body? So when you can do that, when, when you can, through, through this kind of training that I'm going to describe today, when you can train yourself to cognitively know the difference, not going on what you feel or what you think you're feeling, but just truly being able to read what's happening physiologically and you adjust your meal sizes and times that way, they showed that, that people naturally can, will eat up to about a third fewer calories in a day with less hunger. Their blood sugar actually stabilizes. Insulin resistance starts to become minimized. So they become more, more sensitized to glucose and insulin. So you get more bang for your buck. You don't have the hunger. You don't have the, the body fat storage capacity and, and people naturally lose body fat just by learning this one thing we're going to talk about today. So of course, the first question is how much of this can we truly recognize and how much does our own mind get in the way, our emotions, our thoughts, our, our preconceived notions. And, and what they thought, of course, or, or and this is a, I mean, this is a field of study. You know, when people look at even how we feed infants and what that does to their lifelong impulses toward food, when parents 
are, are, are in, you know, I've raised four kids with my wife and, and I know the difference between, you know, quote, having a schedule, which everybody thinks is good for children or letting kids be a little bit more intuitive. That's not a binary that you don't have to have one or the other. You can have both. <laughs> and so, you know, we all know that structure is important for, for kids and infants, but when you constantly say, oh, it's 8 a.m., this is when we eat breakfast, we shove food down little Susie's throat, and this is when you wake up from your nap and you eat, and this, if they're not hungry and you force them, like, clean your plate, this kind of thing, there, there are a lot of things just from a gastrointestinal perspective that, that start showing up in, in symptom sets. But when, when you do the opposite and you pay attention and let the child start learning true physiological hunger cues, it's a game changer. And there's an interesting little stat coming up later in the study with kids that is really kind of mind blowing. But when you're trying to separate the biology versus the psychology, you guys won't be surprised to know that I always start at biology first. I mean, I talk about that a lot. Um, you know, our, even our thoughts coming from our brain are rooted in organic matter. Uh, I, I've talked about this before because Dr. Sapolsky mentioned it in one of his research reviews, but do you know in sentencing, like when a judge sentences people to jail time, do you know the only single factor, the only demographic variable that you can point to and say, that's what causes a judge to give a harsher or lighter sentence? The only variable that matters is how long has it been since the judge has eaten if, you, if the judge hasn't eaten in three, four or five hours, you're going to get a harsher sentence statistically because they are hangry. True stat. So biology first, you know, we always have to look at what's happening under the skin. So we do understand that food marketing, social cues, like, hey, I'm going to go out with my friends and we're going to have a beard with some of my friends. It's time to have fun. So we'll get that basket of chips and blah, blah, blah. We know emotion, stress, anxiety palatability, the sugary foods, the sweet foods, all of that goes into the mix in terms of what makes us eat what we eat. But all of those things also change if your biology is more stable, going back to blood sugar. So that empty, hollow sensation, as they call it in the literature, is that initial wave of hunger. And that's because of that phase three contraction of just, you know, just the, the stomach just violently contracting, get that stuff into the duodenum or duodenum if you're in Kentucky, like uh, Kevin. And then there's the inanition or, or yeah, inanition, uh, which is the, the actual feeling of those biological changes, like blood sugar coming down. So think of those two things. Here's, here's part of your first training. You guys came here today to learn a technique so that you can manage hunger better. And by that, I don't mean that you're just going to like become stronger willed. You're going to be tougher and mentally able to say, oh, I'm hungry, but I'm not going to eat. Has nothing to do with what we're going to talk about today. It, it's learning to differentiate these physical symptoms relate them to what your true blood sugar is. And then you will start to wire those things together in your mind so that it doesn't become an emotional reaction to food, but more of a cognitive reaction to, to your hunger. So, um, so the, the first thing, so, so there is, this is a model. Like I said, this is, this I think is the best model to explain initial hunger, that, that phrase that, that people look at in literature who study hunger, you know, that initial hunger is a category that's looked at and researched. And the theory that it's primarily based on blood sugar I certainly subscribe to, especially after the study, because you're going to see how relevant it was in, in changing people's actual food intake and their thought process around that. Um, but there, there, of course, I'm, I'm coming back to, I'm not, I'm not hedging here, but you do have to consider that there's the glucose model where we're just biological organisms and that drives everything. 
but we're also very social and psychosocial organisms. And there are all these other factors, even day to day with how much sleep we're getting and so forth. So you still have to realize that there is this, this fluidity to it. And there, there are a lot of variables that aren't necessarily going to be just concretely biological. Yet at the same time, if you look at biology first, you're controlling the biology to your advantage and then cognitively, you're able to consider that biology appropriately and correctly, then all of these other things tend to get muted and, and they don't drive you to, to higher levels of hunger. So, so here's what they started to do. They, uh, they wanted to look at from the ground up. Let's start with babies. Let's start with babies, children, then adults. And as I mentioned, somebody who is just scheduling their children to eat, that that's one end of the continuum. The other end may be just kind of a neglectful parent. Um, here's a kind of a funny story. Like I, I, I mean, I've, I've raised four kids and I had four siblings and being a nutrition guy, a health scientist by trade, when my grandson was born 14 or so months ago, and I'm seeing all these developmental changes day to day, week to week, you know, it's just always amazing. And when, when I, I very, very quickly, I was able to just note like when he's hungry or when he's tired or when he needs something else. And to this day at, at 14 months old, now he's running around just like, he's just a little maniac toddler almost but you can just see like this aggression come over him. He was at our house last night and it's about dinner time. And, um, you know, people in the kitchen are making dinner and he's just like getting frustrated and mad. And I'm like, there's no way he's going to wait till dinner. I mean, this kid is starving. And especially with a, a, just a massive metabolism in a little kid that's burning so many calories. So, you know, he's just being this little terror and I get out some fruit and some things and he's just gobbling it down and, and you just see his affect come right back up. He's just, just right back to where he was. But for people who either neglect kids and don't let them eat when they're hungry or they force food when they're not hungry, you do create this level of gastrointestinal distress and you also reinforce to kids that you don't listen to your hunger cues, you eat when you can eat, or you eat when you're not hungry, you eat because it's time to eat and all these things. And, and I want you guys to consider as adults, how some of that can be neurologically hardwired because that's just how we were raised and our brain is still developing through those processes. And so now we're, we're, we're trending against those hardwired impacts. I mean, they're just, you, you think you can control your body with your thoughts, but some things are just hardwired into your biology now, and it could be much more difficult for some people than others. But uh, so, so part of their research with kids is that when they started letting kids just listen and develop their own hunger cues and, and mediation that way, kids naturally ate according to blood sugar levels, like my grandson last night. He knows his blood sugar is getting down. His, his body's telling him it's time to eat. Like, I want some freaking food. Um, and nobody else is paying attention to him. And so he's not getting what he wants. Um, and, and so that's, that's, a, that's a problem. So, so automatically, you know, consider the fact that kids are even better than us at just listening to their own bodies. And that's going to show up, as I said, a little bit later. But when we went to adult training in this particular study, uh, this is how they did it. They, they got glucometers and, and they were doing journaling and they were doing actual training with these adults. And, and this is a quote right from this, this paper, the effectiveness of this method in altering eating habits needs to be spelled out to be fully appreciated. And they, they went on to explain, like, we found a correlation that was so strong. You're not even going to believe this. That those are big words for scientists because Researchers like to say, well, you know, this is what we found and this is how we might be able to apply it in some context with some people some of the time, but we need some more research and everybody equivocates along those lines because nobody, you know, in science, taking a hard dogmatic stand is always proven to be wrong at some point because we just keep getting more and more information. So these guys said, like, hold the phone. We found out some shit like this. This blew our minds. There, there was such a correlation 
to teaching people how they can monitor their own blood sugar levels and the impact that would have that we as researchers were even stunned. But they started out, I believe this was, let me get here on this slide, a seven. Okay, so the next slide will give some of the parameters. But what they found in this first study is that when people were trained, and I'll explain how they were trained, they just started within a couple of weeks stopping their eating habits. It's like, I just, when I was no longer hungry, I stopped eating. Their interoceptive awareness, we've talked about that a lot in 2021 in, in the Flexible Dieting Institute on how you know, listening to those internal cues can be trained and, and they reinforce that. Uh, and they also said that this was a radically different approach. And I agree. Uh, I'm going to get to a point here uh, where I describe this completely. But when you're looking at the front end of nutrition, when should I eat? Should I eat when I'm hungry? It sounds so like intuitive. And now there's a whole field of even pop culture dieting called intuitive eating. Um, but it's different than anybody else has ever described in dieting culture and methodology. So it's typical that you tell people, well, just stop when you're full, dummy, take smaller bites, eat slower. You know, as soon, you know, if you just pile in, you know, five gallons worth of food and it's not even through your esophagus yet, of course, you're still going to be hungry. So slow down. And everything is always taught in that restrictive way. Stop eating, eat less. What they were training people to do is don't eat until you feel empty. You know that first hunger pang is going to come because of that, that, that phasic explosion of final stomach contents in the small intestine. That's your first hunger pang. Ignore that. That's just your body saying, oh, hey, digestion's over. You feel, we, we've internally positioned that in our brain to be something of hunger and if you really think about it, you know, that's not real hunger. When you're getting hungry is when you start feeling that blood sugar come down, you start feeling a little weaker, you start feeling that irritability. And that's when, if you were taking true glucose monitoring checkpoints, you would see, yeah, my blood sugar is coming down. And maybe at this level, that's when I start to lose my shit. Like that's when I, that's when I just can't take it. I'm getting hungry. That's when I go into the kitchen and start grabbing bags of Doritos and Oreos, like, like bad stuff happens here, but here is maybe a better point where I can have a better meal. Uh, I'm going to talk about some of these nuances, but, but think of that as they described it. If, if we can teach the world that any dieting method, if you're going to focus on biology first, start with teaching people to not eat until you know you are physiologically empty when your blood sugar levels are, are coming down off of that wave. They thought that was, that was novel. So this initial study was 158 adults, seven weeks, control group, study group. And, and again, they, I already told you guys a lot of this. They, they were ranking hunger based on, on blood sugar levels. So with a glucometer, they would check and they would train these people. Okay, like here's your blood sugar level. How do you feel? It's been an hour since you've eaten, two hours, three hours, four hours. Let's journal and, and let's start getting you thinking about the biology of what's happening instead of just internally in your brain thinking, I'm hungry. It's time to eat. Because remember, again, some of those social cues, those psychological cues, stress, emotional eating, like those kind of things you, <laughs> that you don't always end up even being able to differentiate those from real hunger. And here at the end of the study, they actually found that the trained group were reliably and the researchers use words like significantly with like substantial precision, were able to predict what their blood sugar levels were just based on how they were feeling that interoceptive awareness, the control group, they didn't have this training. They were still clueless. They're like, I don't know, my blood sugar is 120. No, it's actually 80. Oh, I think my blood sugar is 40. No, it's actually 200. Like they were clueless. But the trained group, like they were down to extremely surprising, precise levels of, of description, C correct appropriation of, of that description. So 80% so of trained subjects, and this is what I talked about kids earlier, 90% of trained children were able to identify their blood glucose levels and, and initiate appropriate meal patterns. 
with a mean error time of 30 minutes. So they were able to, so, so we know digestion, depending on the quantity and the quality of food can take anywhere from 30 to 60 minutes. Like you have a nice little liquid meal, um, you know, just whatever, it could be anything, or it could be even a protein shake. You've got a lot of protein, but it's still a liquid meal that could be in and out of your stomach in 60 to 90 minutes, a really heavy meal with a lot of protein and even some fat that can still be exiting your stomach four, five, six, seven hours later. I mean, there's a wide margin depending on context. So it's not as easy as it sounds with all the different sizes of meals you guys can eat, the different complexities, the different macronutrient profiles, yet with training in this biofeedback mechanism with a glucometer, within a couple of weeks, subjects were able to, within 80% reliability, come within 30 minutes of just nailing that exact blood sugar level and when they should actually initiate a new meal. So there are some metabolic consequences to this. Let's say these people end up doing this. Like we train these people and then we, that, that was just the, a seven week training study to see if they could, if they could cognitively get it. Can you get to the point where you predict what your blood sugar is and you can know your interoceptive biology that well. Now they decided, we'll see what happens when they do that. Let's turn them loose. Let's just say, okay, now we're going to track you. Another study, 149 subjects, 18 to 60 years old, seven weeks of that hunger recognition training, then followed for three months. In the people, and they weren't given a diet. They weren't, you know, they didn't say your goal is to go lose weight. They just said, go, you know, you got this new training. It's, you know, hope you like it. Good luck. We're going to, we're going to track you for three months. Their BMI decreased from 28 uh, to 26, which was pretty substantial. Uh, the BMI did not change in the untrained group. Pre-meal pre blood glucose emerged as the most significant predictor in variation of BMI and weight. So again, they saw that if people started using this meal pattern uh, training and, and then eating according to that, they, they were able to not only lose the weight at, at the higher level, but, but just nailing it, just knowing that every, that I'm not going to eat until I'm hungry, until I physically know my blood sugar level is down here, I'm going to wait until I get to that level. Then even insulin sensitivity started to improve. So let me, let me pause for a second and tell you some of the biological reasons this is happening. You may have heard me or other people talk about glucose disposal. And even in that understanding of the metabolic switch where we're going from using mostly internally stored, um, you know, body products and stuff like that, lipids and carbohydrates. And we start, we, we, we're eating in a way that gets us through those stored processes to the point where we start using body fat as a higher energy level. So blood lipids, blood sugar, blood amino acids, stored glycogen in the liver and the muscle tissue, all of that we have to work through to make body fat stores a higher source of our energy substrates used. That means you have to be in a calorie deficit. If you want to be intuitive to any level, and like I said, intuitive eating is now an entire methodology unto itself. But if you don't think of it as a noun, don't think of intuitive eating as a method, think of it as just a description. I'm going to eat intuitively, meaning I'm not going to schedule my meals. I'm going to eat it at 6 a.m., 9 a.m., 12 a.m., and 3 p.m. Like I'm going to eat every three hours. If you start thinking, well, I'm going to just wait until I'm hungry because maybe sometimes of the day I'll be less hungry or more hungry. I'm going to wait until I can interoceptively deduce what's happening in my body. Well, that means you're going to get that metabolic switch happening in your favor because now you're waiting until you're truly empty. If blood sugar is low, that means you're also using blood lipids, which means glucagon is being released from your pancreas, which means you're liberating more body fat from body fat cells. And that's how you get there. It, it's, it's one of my problems with extreme intermittent fasting. If you're going to eat, let's say 1800 calories a day, are you, does it really make sense to eat that in one meal or two meals? And then you just go into this massive storage mode and then you, you wait another 12 hours to eat. And then you have this extreme fasting mode, or is it better to be intuitive paying attention to what's happening to blood sugar? Again, if we go back a slide, they said that was the single biggest variable correlate in our study. 
was that when people were really nailing that and eating that way, they ended up eating a third fewer calories and they're the ones who lost body fat the fastest. And it showed up even in, you know, pre-diabetic changes and so forth. So let me, let me open this back up to you guys. I'm going to bring you back onto my screen here. And we're going to talk about some of these nuances because in and of itself, this is one piece of the puzzle. It's not how we all should die because you still need to know that there are other tools in your toolbox. For example, if we just eat intuitively, uh, do you think so? I'm not even going to track macros. I'm not going to care about the kind of foods I have. I'm just going to eat what I want when I want. And I'm going to try and work on just my philosophical habits. I'm going to, I'm going to try to align myself with these food principles. I'm going to eat more fruits and vegetables. I've got all these great things, but if you don't have any objectivity, I think you could still be at a loss. You know, from my perspective, that's what we're building toward. But these studies bring some of those methods of intuitive eating closer to us to use even in an acute weight loss phase, one that's more controlled and one that that is a little bit more goal-driven. You know, there, there's another side in the literature where people discuss intentional weight loss. I'm going on a diet. I'm going to be in a calorie deficit. My goal is to lose weight. And there are other people, this is on the intuitive side, who say, well, it's going to be unintentional weight loss. I'm just going to commit to myself to eat better. I'm going to stop eating these horrible foods. I'm going to eat healthier foods. I'm going to create some better exercise habits. All that is phenomenal stuff. But in the middle there, I think we can also just use some of the greater tools of accuracy and objectivity. And, and it, the, the thought occurred to me as I'm was thinking about presenting this information, everybody's instantly going to be going to CVS and getting glucometers and everybody's going to be checking their blood sugar and they're going to be trying this. And I don't want to say that that's the answer and you should do it, but I also think it's pretty freaking cool. And, and you might want to like that, like that may be a great way to kind of study this and see if you really can do this because the training that these people went through was just that. It was just checking their blood sugar, journaling, trying to make correlations to see, okay, at this point in how I feel, here's my blood sugar. At this point, here's how I feel. So I know when I get down to maybe 75 or 80, that's typically this much time after this kind of meal, or maybe it's this much time after this other kind of a meal I have. And now I can associate that exact feeling. Oh, it's time to eat. That can work. That's a great tool to have in your toolbox. But again, we have to put this in the context of personality psychology and our goals. And some people may not want to do that. Some people may really love the objective stuff. Like I'm going to, you know, down to the gram, make sure my meals are this way. And other people may really hate structure entirely. So, you know, this still has to fit into what you're willing and able to do. But one of the, one of the preeminent points to me was the fact that this was incredibly trainable to people you know, within seven weeks or getting this kind of result. And it really was game changing to them where they just didn't feel lost and kind of at the whim of whatever dieting method they were using. Cause I think that's our first impulse as people, we will often just say, okay, you know, tell me what to eat, you know, coach, give me the exact meals. Give me the exact meal plan. What time should I eat these? What's my pre-workout meal? What should my post-workout meal be? And if we as coaches say, well, it kind of depends how you feel. You know, nobody wants to hear that. We want to know exactly what to do, but it truly does depend on how you feel if you're interpreting your feelings appropriately. If you know those feelings are based on the actual biology happening, most importantly, blood sugar levels. So let me open this up to you guys and, and see what you think, because I know there are, like I said, nuances on both sides of the continuum that we could get into but just, just having this knowledge and maybe hearing some of these, these concepts for the first time, what are, what are your thoughts and questions? I'll be happy to jump in here, Joe. You know, um, uh, it reminded me of a conversation that you had with Dr. Corey Probst, your health psychologist over at the Diet Doc. Without using the finger prick, 
it's a it's a kind of like uh, go through a mental questionnaire. Uh, what am I feeling? Uh, why am I feeling that way? In other words, uh, how long has it been since last I ate? Uh, what did I eat last? Uh, what was I planning on eating? What was my activity level? What's going to be my activity level? And then making a decision on uh, whether or not you're going to eat and what you're going to eat. Because I'm assuming all these other people, they took finger pricks. Is that how they look down their glucose level? Um, I, I, well, you know, in people who are checking this uh, considerably often now, they have these patches that almost give you access to like finger prick kind of constant information. And you just hold your phone up to an app and do that. But outside of that, I am going to have to ask, ask Kevin, Kevin, jump in here. What, what are the ways of testing this? Is it, is it, is it a finger prick every time? Is there something easier to get accurate information? That's really pretty much the best thing yeah. still. Um, and the, like the CGM uh, continuous glucose monitoring where you can just, you or you essentially have the needle within your arm embedded more or less. And then that's where you just use a phone or some device to, you know, it, it does whatever to get that immediate glucose without having to prick yourself. And that's really the, it's not the gold standard yet, but I would have no doubt that's going to be the new thing just because it's so easy. It's, it's far easier for patients and no pricking. Yeah. So yeah, unfortunately that is kind of the invasive thing is if you're going to train yourself like this for a couple of weeks or try to get some data, it's going to be that finger prick every time. And, uh, I don't know. I'm not a big needle guy. So <laughs> not me yeah, I mean, you know, and if you're training, that's kind of a, you know, uh, a, a hindrance. There's no doubt. Uh, but it goes back to emotional intelligence, because if you can stop and think about uh, what you're experiencing uh, in your uh, intestinal uh, tract uh, and then make good decisions, uh, you know, you could teach yourself without having to go that far. It seems as if it's possible. That's what I was going to start out, Dan. That's that's what I meant when I said, you know, I was going to try and dissuade everybody. Like, don't everybody run out and get glucometers? Um, because I think you're right. Like, we can learn to do this by recognition and we can get to the same place. The only thing by not doing this, and, and I'm not advocating for it or against it, yeah. is that, you know, we do love to hang our hats on concrete information. And so these people who were trained and they can see those true numerical values, it goes back to the old quote, you know, what you can measure, you can manage. And so it gives us that concrete number in our brains. And so I think that's helpful, but I totally agree with you. It's not, it's not necessary. And I mean, you use the example with your grandson last night, I had me thinking about, uh, and you know, no offense to anybody out there, the correlation with my two little dogs. You know, huh. they're not hungry. They don't eat. Yeah. You know, and I'm eating and I'm trying to give him a piece of chicken this morning. And he just snubbed me, turned around and walked away. I'm like, hey, I'm giving you a treat here, pal. And he didn't want it. You know, the other one stood there and she took all I would give her. Uh, so it's kind of like, you know, when you talk about intuitive eating, it's really kind of like going back to the way things were. Uh, because society, I think sometimes we get so sophisticated. I was just thinking about what you're saying, you know, with work, for example. I only get an hour for lunch or a half hour for lunch, and it's at 12 o'clock. And if I don't eat then, then I don't have enough chance, so I got to eat. So a lot, I think a lot of things, a lot of the structure that uh, jobs and uh, life put on us take us away from intuitive eating or at least listening to our bodies. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Any, uh, any other thoughts? Thanks, Dan. Always, always great to hear your thoughts. Andrew, you jumping in? Yeah, I have a, a quick thought. I, I really think about this frequently as somebody who used to be quite a bit bigger, ate a lot more food on a regular basis. I, you know, I realized a while back that I had the tendency as a child not only to be told to clean your plate, but also to learn to eat quickly, like especially growing up in elementary school, you have a limited number amount of time to eat. So both of those things, I think it taught me personally to just ignore whatever natural 
uh, mental cues I was getting from my body telling me when and when not to eat. So I still that I imagine most people probably do. And I even struggle making sure not to try to reinforce that with my kids. But um, I, I just wonder, like, bigger picture question-wise, if that kind of stuff was talked about in and around the study and, and how people's um, kind of conditioning can affect uh, their awareness of it. Yeah. Um, Did you hear any of that? It, it was like, I, we got about every other word. So I, I think we were right along with you, but, uh, but it was tough. It's, it's like you're in a nuclear shelter there or something without much signal. But um, yeah, let, let me, let me answer that directly, Andrew, because they, um, they did address that and they talked, you know, I'm getting feedback on my end. I hope you guys can hear me. Okay. Um, you, they had a, a quite a narrative about the different ways that we, we, poison our kids minds with with things like that and i totally agree i mean every one of those points from the fact that you're you're in elementary school and you get like 20 minutes you know to eat and then you got to rush out and all that um that's why i said i think you know structure is not all bad i mean we also have to live in a society that functions and works like we all in every single job in every single school you know you can't be in algebra class and pull out you know some microwave fish and broccoli you know it at seven years old. Um, but at the same time, I think it's more those parental values, you know, like, like that stuff at home, because you almost can compartmentalize, okay, at school, this is the way this happens. And if I need to mediate that in some way, if I need an extra granola bar, or, you know, like I used to, you know, go in for baseball practice before school and have baseball practice after school. And so, you know, I'm carrying as much food with me as I am baseball equipment. Um, and it's like, well, that's just how you have to structure your day. You work around it as you can, but more of those core central values were taught as parents to clean your plate or like me growing up in a poor family with five kids, man, if you did, if you weren't the first one done with your first serving, you weren't going to get a second serving. And if you weren't, if you weren't hiding cookies from your siblings, like you weren't, you weren't going to get any the next day. And so you start having those thoughts about, like I have to have all this anxiety and emotion pent up about just making sure I survive. Of course that travels with you then, you know, into adulthood. So I, I think it is truly important. Like that's, that's a make or break point, how we parent our children. That is, that is brain development right there. That's psychological temperance development. So um, unfortunately we can't undo that once it's done to us. Uh, but as us rearing children now, it's certainly something I, I hope we all think about a little bit more completely. Awesome. Any, any other thoughts or questions? Uh, just even in your own application, like if you want to start thinking through this now, it, it makes me, my mind wander back to when we were talking about meal timing. We actually did, you know, a science of meal timing, meal spacing, that sort of thing. And one of the things that we talked about was making sure that you're, you're matching your food to your activity. You know, what, what are you trying to accomplish? And, and are you, and of course, hunger came up in that, but pre-workout, post-workout, you know, larger meals, uh, maybe points of the day that may snag you a little bit more. Like this week, we already talked about, you know, getting home at dinner time, And that's when we all seem to get hungrier for different reasons. So any, any thoughts, any questions you guys have about really kind of applying this this way in your own training? Go ahead, Amanda. Yeah, so um, I'm actually really intrigued on, on this intuitive eating. And I, I think I'm going like, to want to try checking my blood glucose and, and just to kind of see like when I'm hungry, like, you know, my thing is, is because I'm in a, it's not like a lifestyle thing for me. It's like I'm in my comp prep. Is it something that I could use right now? Because like, I'm always like this week, I've just been like, oh my God, hunger has just been crazy. So I'm constantly just looking at the clock. Like there's 20 heat. <laughs> That's all I think about is food. And sometimes 
I'm like, I can't turn off my brain when I'm trying to sleep. Like I'll just lay there and think about what I'm going to eat the next day. <laughs> just thinking about food. So, um, as someone that's a competitor, is this something that you can utilize while you're prepping for a competition or is it just more of like a lifestyle thing? I'm so glad you brought this up. Super, super good question, Amanda. It, it's, it's because I already mentioned that if, if you're somebody as in the study, we're not going to give you a diet. We're not telling you to lose weight. We're just going to track you for three months. You can definitely start to change your behavior. And, and because your blood sugar is more stable and you're eating along with those natural blood sugar cycles, you just instantly feel less hunger. And then as your insulin sensitivity improves and, and you, you start seeing that metabolic switch occurring physiologically, that gives you layer upon layer upon layer of feeling less hunger. So you're already there. Somebody on a controlled, intentional weight loss plan, metabolic switch, you're losing body fat. You've already lost you know pounds and pounds of body fat, but you're in a calorie deficit by choice that's more aggressive than just intuitive eating. So now you have to use this as a tool differently and, and where you can apply it because you, if you have a date on the calendar, I must compete here. I must be at this body comp level reverse engineering. I have to lose this much body fat per week to get there. You know, you, you have created that environment by which you now have to work through your way of applying this is just to be more intuitive with how and when you eat during the day. So if you're going to have a certain amount of calories, there, there's two levels as I see it, Amanda. So maybe I'm not like I was supposed to eat at 9 a.m., but I actually feel pretty good. Maybe I can go to 10. Maybe I'll be hungrier later in the day. So I'm going to kind of push a meal time forward. And that's just rolling with the punches of the day, interoceptively listening to my body. Doesn't mean you get an extra 200 grams of carbs that day if that misaligns with your goal. But also one of the things we talked about this week was, do we really have to look at every single day as its own metric? Like maybe if you wanted to have, let's say 200 grams of carbs a day, if that's your game plan, I know you wish it was, but uh, you know, if, if that's 1400 grams of carbs in a week, then is it okay if you have 150 today and 250 tomorrow and then 100 and then you know 275? Like if, if that's how you can apply it, then that's another almost meta level. But you're still stuck with the fact that instead of being in the intuitive camp where it's not goal-directed intentional weight loss, you put yourself in a goal-directed intentional weight loss system and environment. So you do, you do still have to pay attention and manage those direct metrics, but super, super question. That's, that's one of the points I wanted to get to, which is you got those two sides of the continuum and those, those people who are really still, you know, grinding the gears toward an ultimate goal with a time constraint, you just don't have that same luxury as some people. Go ahead, Charles, you jumping in. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, always, a. Uh interesting uh conversation the, the the concept of intuitive eating um i mean everything you're saying makes makes sense to me but when, if you're trying to um hit certain macros how does how does that really fall in line strategically with with intu intuitive eating um it just almost seems like it could be um i don't know um work those two those two goals could kind of work against each other to a certain extent yeah. Um, so there are people, and I know them closely, people like Dr. Corey Prost, people like Dr. Gabrielle Fundero are really shifting and subscribing to intuitive eating as a philosophical method. And so I don't, I mean, both of them would probably agree that for health and medical reasons, sometimes goal-directed intentional weight loss, that's a good thing for some people. At large, as a society, as a species, clearly it's not helping us. If, if we've gone from a 2% obesity rate to a 70% obesity rate in the last 50 years, if the number one killer in the world is now over consuming food, and yet we have all of these, you know, if every one of us goes on a diet every year, almost, and 95 or so percent of us, when we lose weight, we gain it back. 
the intuitive eating crowd looks at that and says, you guys suck. Like nobody, like if you even go on a diet, you're basically ensuring the opposite result. So stop it, knock it off. Nobody should have any goal directed intentional weight loss plan. You should just eat better. You should try and change who you are behaviorally. And then the result will be that you'll lose body fat. I don't disagree and I don't agree. I think that's one end of the continuum. The other end of the continuum, you could say, would be the most structured, aggressive, harsh, regimented diet protocols. So those are the two poles for our different goals and our different personalities and our maybe even times of life, what we have the mental and physical capacity to deal with at the time, because it does take work and mental effort. You know, maybe we slide up and down on that scale to different levels. I mean, I can tell you right now, even with a goal of weight loss, I told you guys, I lost 10 pounds last year. I'm going to lose 10 pounds this year. I'm not tracking macros. I'm, I'm intuitively eating. I'm eating good food. I have some, some principles I'm living by. I, I won't eat certain foods on certain days and I'm not eating junk food. And I'm, you know, I'm, I'm kind of checking off some boxes, but our goal with any clients even giving them macronutrient profiles and energy balance, you know, calorie distributions and all that, whether it's per day or per week, our goal is to help people physiologically navigate that weight loss and learn through the process so that you never have to do it again. Like I want you to get to where I'm at, where you don't need those kind of metrics and analytics and structures to lose weight but it's a great learning process to get there. And you learn a lot. It's like, you know, you were in the military, Air Force Academy, basic training, going to college, taking those engineering classes, learning how, you know, you don't, you don't intuitively learn how, how a jet engine works. Like you got to know stuff to the nth degree. So getting into nutrition and learning all of that stuff and learning how to apply that structure, that's not so you can do it for the rest of your life. It's so you can not have to do it for the rest of your life. So to me, that's that continuum. It's not like this method is better than this method or vice versa. It's let's start with structure and build towards greater levels of intuition and flexibility. So good questions, guys. Yeah, guys makes sense to me. You guys always come through. Thanks, Charles. Really, really well said. All right. You guys ready to wrap it up? We've been on for an hour. Let you guys get back to your Friday afternoons and ready for the weekend. So this was part one. I am going to talk about some of these things like you guys, you guys really kind of framed it out nicely this week where we're going to be talking about, uh, look at Steve and, and Yosemite park there. Uh, good for you to check in with us visually, but, uh, we are, you know, we're going to talk about some of the behavioral things and we're going to pick apart hunger from a couple of different angles. But as I said, I, I gotta, I gotta sink into my home base of biology first, because if, if that biology is not working for us, I think, you know, nothing else is really going to be that concrete. 